Quebec and Halifax, the two great Canadian seaports, were safe from immediate American attack. Though Quebec was the ultimate objective of the Americans all through the war, but the frontier west of Quebec offered several tempting chances for a vigorous invasion, if the American naval and infantry forces could only be made to work together. The whole life of Canada there depended absolutely on her inland waterways. If the Americans could cut the line of the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes at any critical point, the British would lose everything to the west of it, and there were several critical points of connection along this line. St. Joseph's Island, commanding the straits between Lake Superior and Lake Huron, was a vital point of contact with all the Indians to the west. It was the British counterpoise to the American post at Michilimackinac which commanded the straits between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. Detroit commanded the waterway between Lake Huron and Lake Erie, while the command of the Niagara Peninsula ensured the connection between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. At the head of the St. Lawrence, guarding the entrance to Lake Ontario, stood Kingston. Montreal was an important station midway between Kingston and Quebec, besides being an excellent base for an army thrown forward against the American frontier. Quebec was the general base from which all the British forces were directed and supplied. Quick work by water and land together was essential for American success before the winter. Even if the Canadians were really so anxious to change their own flag for the Stars and Stripes, but the American government put the cart before the horse, the army before the navy, and weakened the military forces of invasion by dividing them into two independent commands. General Henry Dearborn was appointed commander-in-chief, but only with control over the northeastern country, that is, New England and New York. Thirty years earlier, Dearborn had served in the War of Independence as a junior officer, and he had been Jefferson's Secretary of War. Yet he was not much better trained as a leader than his raw men were as followers, and he was now 61. He established his headquarters at Greenbush, nearly opposite Albany, so that he could advance on Montreal by the line of the Hudson, Lake Champagne, and the Richelieu. The intended advance, however, did not take place this year. Greenbush was rather a recruiting depot and a camp of instruction than the base of an army in the field, and the actual campaign had hardly begun before the troops went into winter quarters. The commander of the Northwestern Army was General William Howe, and his headquarters were to be Detroit, 
from which Upper Canada was to be quickly overrun without troubling about the cooperation of the Navy. Like Dearborn, Howe had served in the War of Independence, but he had been a civilian ever since. He was now fifty-nine, and his only apparent qualification was his having been governor of Michigan for seven years. Not until September, after two defeats on land, was Commodore Chauncey ordered to assume command of the naval force on Lake Erie and Ontario, and use every exertion to obtain control of them this fall. Even then, Lake Champlain, an essential link both in the frontier system and on Dearborn's proposed line of march, was totally forgotten. To complete the dispersion of force, Eustace forgot all about the military detachments at the western forts. Fort Dearborn, now Chicago, and Michigan-Mackinac, important as points of connection with the western tribes, were left to the devices of their own inadequate garrisons. In 1801, Dearborn himself, Eustace's predecessor as Secretary of War, had recommended a peace strength of 200 men at Michigan Mackinac, usually known as Mackinac. In 1812, there were not so many at Mackinac and Chicago put together. It was not a promising outlook to an American military eye. The cart before the horse, the thick end of the wedge, turned towards the enemy, three incompetent men giving disconnected orders on the northern frontier, and the western posts neglected. But Eustace was full of self-confidence. Hull was entrusting his militiamen, and Dearborn was, for the moment, surpassing both by proposing to operate with effect at the same moment against Niagara, Kingston, and Montreal. From the Canadian side, the outlook was also dark enough to the trained eye, though not for the same reasons. The menace here was from an enemy whose general resources exceeded those in Canada by almost twenty to one. The silver lining to the cloud was the ubiquitous British Navy and the superior training and discipline of the various military forces immediately available for defense. The maritime provinces formed a subordinate command based on the strong naval station of Halifax, where a regular garrison was always maintained by the imperial government. They were never invaded or even seriously threatened. It was only in 1814 that they came directly into the scene of action, and then only as the base from which the invasion of Maine was carried out. 
We must, therefore, turn to Quebec as the real centre of Canadian defence, which indeed it was best fitted to be, not only from its strategical situation, but from the fact that it was the seat of the Governor-General and Commander-in-Chief Sir George Prevost. Like Sir John Sherbrooke, the Governor of Nova Scotia, Prevost was a professional soldier with an unblemished record in army. But though naturally anxious to do well, and though very swiftly diplomatic, he was not the man, as we shall often see, either to face a military crisis or to stop the Americans from stealing marches on him by negotiation. On the outbreak of war, he was at headquarters in Quebec, dividing his time between his civil and military duties. Greatly concerned with international diplomacy and always full of caution, 